If you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and take those out or a Bible app. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a um, pew Bible or a chair Bible now um, in the rack in front of you. And we are going to be in <clears throat> the book of Acts, Acts the 13th chapter. If you're using one of those uh, chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 921. Primarily, we're going to be just looking at, I believe it's the first four verses, but we're going to read, um, I don't know, maybe 12 verses just to set the text and the context, and also just to prepare you for what's happening next after what we look at. Y'all doing good? It's good to see you. It's good to have those of you that are joining us on live stream, um, whether you're quarantining or whether you're just kind of checking us out. It's great to have you as well. And it's my joy and privilege just to welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, whether you're here or whether you're there in your living room or in your bedroom or wherever you may be, it is my joy and privilege to do that. It was good to have you. <clears throat> All right, Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pat, Patphos, they came upon a certain magician, a, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was, he was with the school Sergius uh, pa Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the prompt school away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the, pro, then the proconsul believed and he saw what had occurred for he was astonished as the teaching of the Lord, at the teaching of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so incredibly thankful this morning for you, for you, Jesus, for your goodness and your grace that you have bestowed upon us. Lord, even this morning, as I was reminded by my daughter's song that Jesus, you love us. The Bible teaches us this. It, it proclaims your love for us and the cross demonstrates your love for us. And so, Jesus, may our hearts be tender before you as we remind our own hearts and ourselves of your great love for us and your plan for us. 
that you're in your plan of redemption. You've chosen to use us as your church. You've called us to yourself in order to send us out into the world. Jesus, just like you, who is the light of the world that's come to shine in the darkness, you have now established your church, that we would be a city on a hill, that we would shine in the darkness. And so, Lord, as we worship you and as we pray to you and as we proclaim you and as we share you and as we go out and we scatter from this place, Lord, may you shine brightly through us. And Lord, in this time, would you just teach us and instruct us on how you want us to function as a church? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. And so the breakdown of, of the book of Acts is, is fairly simple. Acts is broken down into just a kind, kind of a couple of sections. And what you have in the, in the very first like 12 chapters of the book of Acts, if we could just kind of summarize it and give an overview, is what you have is you have the church in Jerusalem. So it's the church that's being established in Jerusalem. It starts on the day of Pentecost. It goes all the way up into um, Acts chapter 12. And then as we looked at, I I believe like maybe two weeks ago, that persecution hits in Jerusalem. And as persecution comes, the church in Jerusalem is, it's scattered. And so the means by which God scatters his church in Jerusalem is through persecution. And now what you have, starting here in Acts 13, is you have the focus now no longer being the church in Jerusalem that's by majority would have been Jewish, been a very Jewish church. Now what you have is you have the first Gentile church, and that is the church at Antioch. And so we get to focus in on, just for a few minutes, we could have picked it up in Acts chapter 11, we would have seen Antioch being established. But here in Acts 13, it kind of gives us the marks of the church, this Gentile, the church, and this church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch is really, it's like a model church for us. I mean, we use Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I preach that often. I've said like, that's maybe the, the text of scripture that I preach the most here at the Point Community Church is that description of what the church in Jerusalem looked, looked like with the rhythms of, of gathering together and scattering, uh, meeting together in the temple, meeting in homes. We talked about that, how they broke bread, they ate, they centered themselves around the disciples' teachings, but also for us corporately, the church at Antioch is a beautiful picture. And we have the blueprints being laid all throughout the New Testament of what the churches should look like, like a set of plans that we could unroll and we could look at. But then what we have also in the book of Acts and also in the epistles as they're written in the first part of Revelation, we have these these models for us, these pictures, these descriptions of these churches. And that's really what we see here in the church of Antioch. As a way of reminder, and Pastor Sean has preached it, I preached it as well, but this is where we are as we're coming to an end in the storyline, like this is the final chapter. It's the chapter that you and I find ourselves living in of the storyline. It's the age of the spirit working in and through the church. And so Jesus is ascended. He's in heaven, sitting at the Father's right hand. He's sent the Holy Spirit and he sent out his church. So the Holy Spirit is empowering the church. Jesus said to his very disciples, you will be my witnesses. I'm going to send the Spirit. And as the Spirit comes, he's going to empower you to be my witnesses. So let's talk about the church just briefly and quickly. The first thing we could say about the church is the purpose of the church. So what is our purpose as the church? And again, just as a reminder, the church isn't a building. When it's talking about the church at Antioch, he's not talking about this building that's built, although they may have had a building that they all met in, right? What he's talking about is the people of God, the called out ones, the ones who have been called out of the world and been called to Jesus 
and then called to one another and called to Jesus's mission. So the purpose of the church is this, it is to glorify God. Why have you been called out? Why have you been saved? Why has the Holy Spirit regenerated you and made you new? What is the very purpose of everything that we say and we do as a church? It's this one purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God to glorify Jesus by the power of the Spirit, to make much of him, this God who has saved us. And so the purpose really for us is worship. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. I mean, in fact, God said that's the whole purpose for humanity. All of humanity, all of creation, everything that we see has this one purpose. And that one purpose is to worship God and to glorify God. God said it early on in scriptures that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea, that we would know him and that we would worship him. And that's what got all jacked up in the fall all the way back at Genesis. And that's what the story of redemption is, is God is purchasing out of the slavery of sin, a people for himself, a gift to his son that would be the bride of Christ. And that's you and I, that we may make much of him in the way that we live and conduct our lives inside here, outside of him in all things. So the purpose of the church is to worship God. The mission of the church is to spread that glory. It is to make that glory known. And we do that by going and telling and teaching and proclaiming and baptizing, sharing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's our mission that we're called on. Romans 10, 14 and 15 how then can they call on him who that, whom, they have not, whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him, in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And that's what we're seeing happening in Acts chapter 13. And that's what we're seeing happening here today, right? And on this beautiful day in November, the same thing is happening. We are being sent out by the Spirit. The mission of the church exists because worship doesn't. So John Piper wrote in his book, let the nations be glad that the mission of the church is to be embraced by the church. And that's what we see here in Antioch because worship for Jesus is not known globally. The mission, the call, what Jesus has asked us to do, it exists because worship doesn't. There isn't everybody that worships Jesus, not in every tribe, every nation, every tongue has Jesus's name yet to be proclaimed. Your neighbor may be ignorant of the true grace and good news of the gospel. He may have it all confused. As I said last week, he may think that Christianity is simply to live a moral life, to live a good life, to try to be a better person. And that is not what Christianity is. Christianity is living our lives in such a way that we glorify and make much of Jesus, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has saved us, the one who has plucked us from the pits of despair and given us hope that's put our our feet on solid ground. That's what we are to do. That's what Christianity really, really is. What we see in Acts chapter 13 is we see the rhythms of the church and the rhythms of the church is to gather and then to scatter. They gather together in worship and then they scatter out on mission. And it's the same thing that we do even this morning. We gather together in worship of Jesus and then at the end as the benediction as we have done for the past almost 50 years, someone will say, now go be the church. And what we're doing is we are scattering We're sending ourselves out so that we can go and fulfill the mission of spreading the glory of Jesus. 
What we see here in the church of Antioch is, Antioch is a missions, a mission-embracing church. They embrace the mission that Jesus has given to them. And then we see that here in this, in this church is a mission-embracing church is a church that is controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing I want us to notice in the text, is it is a church that is led by and controlled by the Holy Spirit, not a pastor, although he's working, the Holy Spirit's working through the pastors, the preachers and the teachers. It says even here, the prophets and the teachers. He's working in the congregation, but the focus is on, this, on Jesus and his spirit that he has sent. A church without, a, without the Holy Spirit is like a car without an engine. It's like a boat without a propeller, a ship without a sail, a piano without any strings. I mean, a car can look really nice on the outside. It can have shiny wheels. You can go in and put the, the tire shine, right? Teaching my son how to put tire shine on his car, right? You make tire shine and you can wax it down and it can look beautiful. You could open up the door. You can have leather interior, but if the car has no engine, it's pretty much useless, right? It's equivalent to your couch. It's no longer a car. What makes a car a car is the engine of the car that propels it and motivates it. You can have a piano that could look absolutely gorgeous. When we were at the, at the factory, we had this old piano that we had salvaged and we had saved and we had ripped all the guts of the piano out and then we put a keyboard in the piano. So it looked like a piano, but it was really a keyboard and we thought that was really cool and it was cool, but I could roll that piano out here on the stage, but there isn't a person in here that can make that piano play a note. Doesn't matter how good of a pianist you may be, we could get the best pianist ever known right? Jerry Lee Lewis, you can bring him in and set him down or a concert pianist, depending on your style of music. I think Jerry Lee Lewis is the best there's ever been, but maybe you got somebody else in mind, right? And they can bring it in. But if the piano has no guts, if it has no strings and it has no hammer, it's not going to play a single note. It may look gorgeous. It may be of some value, but it is absolutely, will never fulfill the purpose of which it's been made in. And the truth is the same could be said about a church that is without the Holy Spirit. A church where the Holy Spirit is no longer welcomed. A church where the Holy Spirit is not dependent upon. A church where the work of the Spirit is now assumed rather than prayed for, rather than longed by both by the membership. It is as equally useless as a car with no engine. Can the Spirit be removed from a church? Is that really a thing? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, it absolutely is a thing. As I've already alluded to, the, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation is Jesus sending word to seven churches. And in this, Jesus gives, uh, he, he congratulates them. He gives them some commendations, but then he also gives them condemnations. He, he applauds them and says, you're doing good in some of these areas, but now I have strong words of warning to some of the churches. And also in that, he sends out words of punishment that will come. And one of those strongest words I think of punishment is that I will remove the candlestick. I will remove the lampstand from your church. And I think that is a picture of, I will remove my Holy Spirit from you. The Holy Spirit can be run off. It can be excluded through false teaching, but it can also be excluded by a church that just assumes it a church where he's not welcomed, a church that we're not leaning into it. The entire life of a church is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 
It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates souls and saves men. It's the Holy Spirit that builds up the body. It's the Holy Spirit that gifts the members for the work of ministry. It's the Holy Spirit that nourishes the saints. It's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies God's people. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gifting of the Holy Spirit that brings about instruction and love and unity that enables us to care for one another, to pray for each other, to give and to be generous. Everything that is wonderful, everything that is glorious, everything in the church is to be done in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know that may just be the big eye on the eye chart, possibly. I like to say some of you, you depending on how, the churches you grew up in, for some of us, including I would put myself in this category early on, I attended a church where our, our Trinity looked like this. We had the Father, and then we had the Son, and then we had the Holy Spirit, right? Nobody really understood him. Others of you was the opposite. You grew up in a church that maybe talked a little about the Father, talked a little bit more about the Son, but everything was about the Holy Ghost. And you didn't really know all that much about Holy Ghost, but he fell a lot. He must have had bad balance because he was always falling and people would do crazy stuff, right? But that's really not biblical to what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a necessity for the church. If we're going to do anything as a church, we, we need the Holy Spirit. We must depend upon the Holy Spirit. We must welcome the Holy Spirit. We must be longing for the Spirit. And how does that occur in a church? How does that happen? Well, here's how a church is filled by the Holy Spirit. It happens when every member of the church is operating in a Spirit-filled life. It's dependent upon you and how you live. It's not dependent upon us and what we write in our statement of faith. We could, we could have a strong statement of faith, a biblical statement of faith of what we believe about pneumatology. That's the study of the Holy Spirit. Ours could be rock solid in what we write and what we believe, but it's useless if we, as the church, as the members of the church, if we do not live spirit-filled lives, every believer being yielded to the work of the Spirit and if you aren't, if you're living in the flesh, if you're living for this world, if you're living neglecting your own spiritual health, if you really aren't present, if you're not longing, if you're not dependent upon the Spirit, if you're just going through the motions of a Christian life, don't you see this? You can maim this whole thing. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he reminds them that it's just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And the Bible always speaks about leaven as sin. It doesn't take a quorum of us living in the flesh to wreck this whole thing. It just takes a few of us living in the flesh to wreck this thing. We must be dependent upon the Spirit. What we see here in, in the first few chapters of the book of, uh, of, of the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, what we see really is three marks of a mission embracing church in Antioch. We see a church who is white hot in fervor for Jesus so much that they sin, they go, they scatter. I mean, there's really just one. It's that they're controlled by the Spirit, but we can give three more in its place also. It is this, that the church in Antioch, they enjoyed godly and gifted leadership. They were led well. The church in Antioch also, they worshiped Jesus through the habits of grace, which means they had open hearts. Talk about the importance of worship. That's why we exist, but they were worshiping and they were worshiping in a way through the habits of grace. Now I put habits of grace so you'll go like, here's what I'm doing. Like this, this is trickery. You're gonna go, what's the habits of grace? And then there's a book, 
right? It's free. You can get it at desiringgod.com, I think it is, or .org, I'm sorry, desiringgod.org, and you type in Habits of Grace, and you can download it as a PDF, or you can order it and buy it, then you've got to pay some money for it. It's free. It's a great book on Habits of Grace. I put that in there as a bait on a hook. The next one is the church in Antioch was generous with all they had been given. Now, as these remain up here, I want you to see something. These are both, um, I think these are both indicators, and they have the ability to raise our awareness for the Spirit. They indicate how well we're tuned in and how hungry we are for the Spirit by how, how well are we doing these things. But not only are they that, and there's other things we could certainly add to the list. I'm just looking at Acts you know, chapter 13, verses one through four here. But also they have the ability to increase them. It's like, for example, you have, uh, most of us, I would say in our, in our homes, we have that, um, that little box that is an opportunity for compromise in your house. There's a little bitty instrument in your house that is, uh, for those of you, uh, those of us who are married, it's an opportunity for us to just show great grace or for us to show great control in. And what I'm talking about is I'm talking about the thermostat in your house, right? Like it's an opportunity for great compromise, is it not? Now, I don't know, maybe some of you, you haven't reached that age, but Luann and I, we've kind of reached that age where the older I get, the colder I get, and the older Luann gets, um, the hotter she gets. Not just in looks, although that's true, but also just when it comes to body temperature. And so we do this dance like in the hallway of compromise where I go and I raise the, the thermostat two degrees, right? Air kicks on, heat kicks on, and then Luann goes like, the heat's on, it's hot in here. And she goes down and lowers it four degrees, right? And then I go back and I raise it two more and we're, we're broke even, right? And some of you, you, you got that in your homes and you know what that feels like. You know what you do with that. But in the same way, that little box, it does two things in your house. One is it tells you, it's a, it's a thermometer, right? It tells you the temperature, the climate of your house. It's gonna be printed on there. I don't know what you keep your house at, but we, we try to shoot for Luann 67, me, you know, 72, but we shoot for 67, right? That's what we're saying, maybe 68, somewhere. But it will tell you the, the temperature, but then also it has a, not just a thermometer, but it has a thermostat on it. So you can crank that mug up a couple of clicks and you can either raise it or lower it. These things that are now on the screen, those things have the same effect. They are good indicators for us, right? But not only are they good indicators, especially those last two, not only are they good indicators for us that we're living open hearts and we have open hands, that we're leaning into the spirit. See, the flesh will always lead you to have a closed heart and closed hands. Jesus, by his spirit, will always lead you to have an open hands and open hearts. Not only can they do those, but the other things here, worship and generosity, they, they can raise the temperature of, a, of the spirit. They can make us more fervent for the spirit. All right, no way I'm gonna get through all this, but number one, the church in Antioch enjoyed godly and gifted leadership. Notice that. There were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, and then it names them. There's five men named there. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius and uh, Manon, and a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and there's Saul. Now, that's quite the list. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that the pastors and the leaders of the church is plural. There's five of them, not one of them. 
as it is throughout the entire Bible. Every time the Bible talks about elders as leaders of the church, it's always plural. And so the church has been gifted with not just a pastor, although how blessed that would be if you just had a godly gifted pastor, but not only that, he have five men who are leading the church. Barnabas is a Jew, a Levite. Possibly he was a priest, but no doubt his family is from the priestly line. Simeon has the nickname of Niger, which means black. So he's probably a dark-skinned man. Uh, Lucius was from Cyrene in North Africa. He's probably um, one of the original evangelists. We saw this in, in Antioch, I mean, in uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 20, but he too is a Gentile. Manian, who is what the Greek form of his name uh, means comfort. And it says here that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch is a bad guy. He's the one who executes John the Baptist. So that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. It's saying, hey, they grew up together, but one went one way, one went the other. But it's also possibly to point at his affluence, person of influence and a person of affluence. And then lastly, you have Saul, who is Paul. Two things that we can say about this group of men, or at least a couple of the members, because we know this about them, is that number one, we could say that they were godly. And number two, we could say that they were gifted. They're godly. We know that about Saul. We've already read and we've already saw and we've already heard a little bit about his testimony. We talked about that last week. We know that Saul was radically saved and Saul, as a, as a person who's radically saved, we know that Paul's also living a godly life. Paul will say to the church in Corinth, hey, listen, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's a strong word right there for a pastor to say to his people. Hey, you see how I'm living my life? You watch me and I'm going to, I'm going to exemplify and be an example to you of how Christ would be to you. Next, we see also here, we see the man by the name of Barnabas. Now here's the deal, Barnabas isn't his real name. This guy's real name is Joseph but the apostles change his name to Barnabas. After what Joseph does is Joseph sells a plot of land and then he gives the proceeds from the land, you know, the money that he's made, he lays it at the feet of the apostles and says, hey, I bet there's some people you know that can use this money more than I can. Very generous. And so the apostles, they change his name to Barnabas and the word Barnabas means son of encouragement. Now, for those of you that know me, and if you've heard me preach for more than like two weeks, you know this, my grandfather, who's my real preaching hero, my grandfather was a Baptist minister as well and a preacher and expositor. But for whatever reason, I can only remember a handful of his sermons that he preached. But one of them that I vividly remember was he was preaching on Barnabas and he was encouraging the church. This is when he served a church in Woodford County called uh, Glens Creek Baptist Church. He was encouraging the saints at Glens Creek to be Barnabases. And I remember just thinking, that's kind of odd because he just kept saying it, be a Barnabas. Will you be a Barnabas? But now after 10 years of ministry and pastoring this church, what we need is we need to be Barnabases. I know for me, like as even as I studied this and as I thought of this, I just started thinking like, how can I be an encouragement to people? And so I got out my phone and I just started sending out some encouraging texts to people just to encourage them. I prayed and I said, Lord, I wanna be used of you to encourage your saints today. I got some time here. I mean, like I got plenty of time, right? You're paying me to be your encourager. I got some time here. Who can I encourage? But this is what I found out even in this week. Encouragement is contagious, 
Like you set out to say like, hey, I wanna encourage this person, but you know what ends up happening? You start getting encouraged. It was almost again, like someone went to the thermostat and they raised up our encouragement by a couple of degrees because sometimes I encouraged this guy and then he would respond with a text that encouraged me all the more. But then all of a sudden I started getting a phone call and a text message for people that I wasn't even texting who were encouraging me. I sent John Cameron a text, just a word of encouragement. He sent me back a strong word of encouragement. It was like, whoo, I needed to hear that. A couple of hours later, my brother Clint Goins called me. He's called me and said, hey, pastor, I just want to know, that, I, I just want you to know that I think you're awesome. And I said, well, you've got the freedom to be wrong, but that's great. Thank you. I'll take that, right? What an encouragement it was for me. Encouragement is contagious, Last month was uh, Pastor Appreciation Month and Elizabeth White led all the middle school girls to write, uh, to write a card to me and Luann. And there's some times, man, when I think uh, I'm kicking 2020's tail and there's a lot of times when I think 2020's kicking my tail. And those words of encouragement from our middle school girls meant the world to us. So we read them and just thank the Lord for them. Encouragement is contagious. Next, we also want to see, though, that we're speaking about godliness. Godliness is a necessity. The leaders of this church, more than just the elders, but for all of them, they were godly. The same thing is true for us and our leadership We can be encouragers, but let us be, if we're anything, let us be godly. That doesn't mean perfect. Good grief, I know that. I know that. I know that I have, to even just some of you in this room, I've fumbled the ball. To some of you, I've been snappy. To some of you, I haven't cared for you well. Like, I can't necessarily say, hey, imitate me. It's I imitate Christ. But I can say, hey, let's all imitate Christ. The beauty and the power of the gospel is it frees us to be honest about our failures and our shortcomings. If the gospel frees us for anything, it certainly frees us for that, that we can find in Christ forgiveness and we can also find in Christ the power by the spirit that makes us perfect, that, that encourages us and presses us on and on. I think about Paul when he writes to the church in Philippians as if there's any encouragement that comes in the spirit. And certainly you and I in 2020, we have found some encouragement together that comes from the spirit. But may that encouragement be just not encouragement to endure, not just encouragement to bite our tongues, but may that encouragement be a genuine encouragement in the Lord to pursue godliness and to pursue holiness. To think about Jesus for who he is and his sovereignty and in his power, to be reminded in our encouragement that there's nothing that has taken him by surprise, that he is still with us and he is still for us. His love shines upon us. His blessing and his smile is with us because of the gospel of Jesus. And what else can they do? What else can happen? I mean, the truth is, is like, gosh, the world can do a lot to us, but they can never, ever take that away from us. And that's all that matters, right? That is what is of most important. So may that encourage us to be godly. Not only were they godly, but they were gifted. You know, the truth is we really can't control our giftedness. We can hone our gifts, but we really can't control that. That's from the spirit. But what we can control is we can control our godliness. But nevertheless, these people were gifted. They have spiritual gifts. They are the prophets, as it says here in the text, they're the prophets and the teachers. These are two spiritual gifts that have been bestowed upon the church, been bestowed 
for the edification of the saints upon these men. They're gifted. They're gifted for teaching. They're gifted for edification. They're gifted in sanctification. Antioch is a church that's been founded on the teaching of God's word. We saw this and we would have seen this and we would preach through in Acts chapter 11. As I said, when persecution hits Jerusalem, they scatter. Barnabas is the one. It says, well, first of all, it says some Jewish teachers, they go to, from, they're from Cyprus and Cyrene and they go to Antioch and they begin preaching, they begin teaching and the spirit begins working and people are being saved and word gets back to Jerusalem and the, the, the uh, apostles, they never left. They're still in Jerusalem. That's why like all the way over in Acts 15, you got the Jerusalem council, a letter going to the Gentile churches from the apostles who were holed up in Jerusalem. But word gets to them that these guys are preaching out in the streets, out in the, you know, the highway and the byways in Antioch and people were getting saved. And the apostles are like, hold on, let's check out what's going on down there. So then they send Barnabas and Barnabas goes down and Barnabas sees what the spirit is doing, that men and women are being saved and they're being preached to and taught. And then all of a sudden Barnabas is like, hey, I need to get some help. So Barnabas goes to uh, Tarsus and grabs this guy by the name of Saul, who's been holed out there for like the last three years, right? He saw this vision of Jesus and now they don't even know what to do with him. He's just been studying and been learning. So he comes over into Antioch and now you got this tag team happening of of two teachers, Saul and Barnabas that are like, the original Midnight Express or something. You know, man, they're just like coming in off the top rail, you know, pile driving people for Jesus and people are getting saved like crazy. I mean, that's what's happening in the church of Antioch. It's flowing from the spiritual giftedness of these men and of these leaders. That is Jesus says, I mean, as Paul writes about um, Jesus in, I think it's Ephesians chapter four, that Jesus says he ascends on high, that he sends He gives, he gifts, that's the word, he gifts the church, men and women to lead it, to teach it. Let me just say this in here. Our teachers, they are a gift from the Lord. D. Smith is a gift from Jesus to this church to teach our women two times a week, virtually in the Bible study, to encourage Pastor Sean, you are a gift from Jesus to this church. We give thanks to you. The men and the women in this room that teach kids point and you study and you write and you learn your lesson when we had it so that you can teach and we'll get there again. We'll get there again. We gotta be patient. We're gonna stand underneath this trial and then we're gonna get there and kids point's gonna be opened up and we're gonna get to teach kids again and you who study to do that, you're a gift to this church from Jesus. Those of you that lead community groups and you study and you learn and you have people in your home and you do all of those things, you're a gift from Jesus to this church. Those of you who lead DNA groups, you know the defunct DNA groups that we shut down, but you still continue to meet because you're hungry to teach and you're hungry to hear God's word. You're a gift to us and to this church. Notice, if you will, not only the preaching and teaching, not only have leadership, but also notice that, let's talk about these habits of grace that are happening. The church in Antioch, it worshiped Jesus and they're cultivating the spirit through the habits of grace. It is open hearts. That a church that does not worship when it's gathered, it will never care about worship when it's scattered. And that's the absolute truth. If you don't care about the lost souls of men and women and the glory of Jesus in here, you'll never care about it out there. 
May we, may, we, may our affections for Jesus be stirred as we, as, we, as we worship Jesus together. Notice that they're gathered together here, this church in Antioch, for worship. Their worship, it's a very thin description of their worship. Not that their worship is thin, but just the description and the words. It says, while, verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, then set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and then they sent them out. The Spirit leads, he leads his church in mission through the context of worship. Notice that their worship, it's described by just two things, not 25 things. Certainly there's no, mime, no, no uh, mimes, there's no pantomimes happening on the stage here, right? But there's just two things happening in the context, at least as it's described here. Two things are, it says that they are praying and they are fasting. Now, what is fasting? Well, fasting is a type of prayer. I mean, you can pray without fasting, but you can't do a biblical fast without prayer. It's just a picture. It's just another description for a fast. That's, I mean, for a type of prayer that's happening here. This isn't intermediate fasting. They're not trying to lose weight. They haven't just tried keto. That's not that. They're not pre preparing for a procedure here. That's not the true fast that they're talking about. But what he's describing here is an intense kind of prayer. What fasting is, is fasting serves as a, as a physical illustration to you. It's you matching in your physical body what either is occurring in your soul or what your desired, right, state of your soul is. So again, this is one of those, you can raise the thermometer, you can raise the temperature of your affections and your longing for Jesus and for his spirit by fasting. This is one of the pictures. The psalmist writes, as a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Deuteronomy writes, says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's the same thing that Jesus in his temptation, he'll quote that to Satan. When Satan says, hey, why don't you turn these rocks into bread? Jesus quotes this. It's a reminder while Jesus is fasting for 40 days that, it's, that, that a deeper, a more desired um, hunger should be our hunger of our souls for Jesus, more even than our physical bodies. What we're doing during a fast is we're creating a, a physical hunger, a physical longing. We're increasing our appetite for something that's physical, food. But what we're saying, what we're praying is, may my spirit, may it hunger and may it long. May my, may my, may my soul, may my spiritual, lowercase a, may my, may my spiritual appetite be just as high as my physical appetite. Or maybe it's to increase that. Maybe it's because of the absence of the spirit. And what you do is you declare and you preach a truth to your body, that very truth that you need more than just bread to live on, Andy. You need God's word. You need the moving of his spirit. You need his truth. And that's what you're doing there in a fast. Every hunger pain reminds my flesh of that truth when you fast. Remember a few years ago, I was fasting. I'd been fasting for a little while. And I didn't really understand this part of the fast, but I, the Lord just vividly, you know, taught it to me as I had decided, you know, it was like, okay, I'm going to fast up until supper time, you know, here. And I'd set that goal and set that date and I've been, been fasting. And then whenever I got ready to break the fast, I put some water on the boil and all I was going to do was eat some ramen noodles. 
And it was like just the steam and the simmer of that water boiling and my mouth started watering for water, right? For ramen noodles, 25 cents. And I just thought, Psalm 42, that's it. As a deer pants for water, as my mouth is watering for stinking noodles that I'm getting ready to eat. Now, some of you go a long time. You know, I got the metabolism of a squirrel. I like to eat about every hour on the hour. And so for me, like when I talk about a fast, I'm talking about like I did like a, you know, a four-hour fast. No, I'm joking, but you know what I'm saying? But my mouth is watering for that. Say, may it be true of my spirit. May my spirit be watering for that as well. What we see happening here is they are engaged in a corporate fast. They're together and they're longing and they're hungry for the spirit to move in their church. It's in that context that the Lord speaks. I don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke to them, whether it was audible and they heard it, whether it was just a leadership of the Holy Spirit type of thing. I don't know, but this is what the text says that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they, they do it. Look at how they respond. They respond in generosity. The church in Antioch was generous with all that they had been given. They had open hands. And they sent out Barnabas and Saul. Can you imagine? You'd be like, if you were in the church of Antioch, you'd probably be like, Lord, you know, can it be uh, Lucius and what's that other cat's name? Manon or something? Can it just be him? Why Barnabas and Saul? But nevertheless, it's like the two that's most well-known. There's two strongest leaders. They're two most gifted leaders, and that's who God calls out, Barnabas and Saul, but yet they send them. That's what the, that's what the picture of when they laying hands on them, it is a, it's a sign of submission, and it's a sign of approval. It's a sign to say, go, we bless you. We bless you in the name of Jesus, and we bless this thing that you're about to do. We lay hands on you to bless you. A church that is controlled by the Holy Spirit will be a generous church. They will have open hearts and they will have open hands and they will let go of the things that we don't hold on to because we don't hold on to anything. If a church had a theme song, it would be Hold On Loosely by 38 Special. That would be our theme song. And that's how we're to live our lives. We hold on loosely to the things of the world. We hold on loosely to the people here. We've sent out a few people and it's always difficult. It's always a hard thing, but also we, we want to send them out. Whatever we've been given with as a church, we long to be generous with those things and we have been given much as a church. We're some of God's spoiled children here. Look around us, are you kidding me? How generous Jesus has been to the Point Community Church through the saints of Thornhill Baptist Church. See, there's this thing, right, that sometimes churches have to incur to have buildings like this, and it's called debt. And then they have to pay for it, and they have to write. And so their money is inhibited some ways because they're writing and paying off debt. And the saints of Thornhill Baptist, they did that for us so that we can move into this place and not incur a penny of debt. But it also, as we have been so, you have been so generous to us corporately as a church, it's forced us to think about the things that we have and to think about our finances and to say, Jesus, how can we be generous? 
This year has been one of the greatest years for us in giving. Praise the Lord. Our needs have been met and over and above those needs being met. We're in a place where right now we're thinking and praying as the elders of the church, how we can be generous and to what works we can gift and give. And it's an awesome thing. And as we give, we give unto the Lord. Notice what he says there in verse two, set apart, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me any gift, any generosity, anything that we send, we send it as unto the Lord. It is his and we give back to him. And that's what we want to do. And what we're able to give, it feels so meager at times. We ask the Lord and we pray to the Lord, Lord, increase our gifts, increase the people that we can send out. Why, why, why can't that be you someday? Why can't we be sending and laying hands on some of you to go into pastor churches or to go into be missionaries or to go and do other works or to encourage churches? Now, listen, I, rarely does anybody leave this church that it doesn't grieve my heart. And there would be even grief in that of sending, laying hands on, sending someone out, but oh my gosh, what a blessed opportunity it would be Lastly, what we have in verses 4 through 12 is we notice that a spirit-controlled church will always meet opposition. And we'll just leave it there. Paul and Barnabas, they load up, they get on that big boat, they sail across into Cyprus, they sail, they get out of the boat, they start preaching and proclaiming Jesus and what happens? They run into a man controlled by a demon. They run into demonic satanic opposition, and that's the truth. Anytime the word of God is proclaimed, anytime a church goes to sin, they will meet satanic opposition. It's all throughout the book of Acts. It's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter six. He reminds us as a church that you and I, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's why you gotta armor up. That's what he's saying. The Christian life is a life of warfare. It's a life, to, a fight is to be fought and the fight is with satanic powers and principalities, but the beauty of it is, is as we think about Satan and we see even here in this text, Satan has power, but the resurrected and exalted Jesus has even more power. May we be his church. Let us pray. Jesus, may our worship of you, may it be white hot. May we be present. May we be present in heart. May we be present in mind with you in this moment as we remember you through the taking of the Lord's Supper, as we pray, and as we sing this next song of how you work and who you are. May our worship of you, may we just be tuned in to you May we just be so grateful for your great grace that you've bestowed upon us, Jesus. And may you be exalted. And then as Pastor Derek offers the benediction and the sending, may we go out to be your church, to shine brightly wherever we may be scattered, in our homes and in our places of work. May we would be in, in, in perilous times such as these. May people see us and see the hope that we have, the confidence that we have in you. Give us opportunity to share the gospel, to tell people of the confidence that we have. It's not because we belittle the coronavirus, but because we trust and we believe in a sovereign God. 
May we conduct our lives and may we love our neighbors well in this time. May we look out for those who may be on the outside that we may care for one another. May we encourage others. May we be encouragers even this week, Jesus. And all of this is for you and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.